Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're interviewing Dr. Nikki Julian, a sex therapist. We're very lucky to be recording two episodes with Dr. Julian about her work. On this episode, we will be exploring sex and shame on a more personal level, and then in our next recording with Dr. Julian, we will get more into recording this issue with patients. We're very excited to be talking about something that we feel is so foundational and critical to how we think and communicate about sex. And for our listeners who are new to the show, you can get a PDF of our show notes or be notified of upcoming guests so that you can submit your questions by becoming a patron of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash WCH or you can find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. So hi, Nikki. Thanks so much for being with us today. Just a little background about how I met Nikki. She was presenting at a conference here in Iowa, and she was a very good presenter and also talked about things I personally had never thought about regarding patients and talking about sex. So I'm really excited to have you on. So we always like to start our episode by asking you to give a brief background about yourself. So if you could talk about your education and your training and where you currently practice and what type of patients you serve. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. My background and training. So I come from a small town in South Dakota and I have a bachelor's degree from a Catholic college. So we didn't talk about sex there at all. And and then I have a master's degree from a small state college in South Dakota. And then I got my PhD here at the University of Iowa and here in Iowa City. So while I was studying for my PhD, I noticed that, you know, it was really focusing on counselor education and mental health was my primary focus for my PhD. And we didn't talk about sex at all. We talked a little bit about sexual orientation. We didn't really talk about transgender. I mean, we really didn't talk a lot about sex at all. And so what I wanted to do was to open up that for master's students is to really educate them on sexuality and sexual health and talking to patients about sex and their own bodies. And so I expanded my training and I went to the Florida Sex Therapy Institute in Palm Beach. It was a beautiful place to go and it was a wonderful training. Susan Lee was my teacher there and she, unfortunately, she has passed away, but she did a lot of really good work as far as sexual counseling and educating and she worked with the association for sex therapists and she put out a lot of good research and she worked a lot with counselors and building that knowledge so it was wonderful to spend time with her one-on-one in some intense training she set up a program for me because it's very expensive to travel that far so I stayed for a couple of weeks and we 
dove in and did a lot of really heavy training. And then I did consultation with her after. So that was a really wonderful experience for me. And then to further my education, I started to work with Veronica Colder, who is a gynecologist at the University of Iowa Healthcare Hospitals and Clinics. And she actually just retired, but she was phenomenal in helping me kind of develop a clinical understanding of female sexual health and specifically. So now I own my own business, Julian and Associates Psychotherapy Services. I'm a private practice clinician. I work specifically with trauma and sexuality. So, so I see sexual issues. I see transgender. I see gender nonconforming. I see sexual health. And I also see sexual trauma quite a bit. So that's where my interest lies, kind of in the realm of how do we create a healthier space for our bodies and our minds. And then I also teach a introduction to sexual counseling at the University of Iowa online, which I've taught for over 10 years. First of all, I think it's extremely interesting that you started at a Catholic bachelor's program and then ended where you are. I think that's great. It is. I really get a front seat on sex and health, and I'm very lucky that I hear other people's stories. And the more stories I hear, the more I realize the lack of understanding of even one's own body is really apparent in our culture, which is unfortunate. So the other question we like to ask our guests, is what informs your perspective or your practice? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? The most valuable piece of what I do is connecting to humans and helping them understand that they're not so different from other people. Because I think that that when we have that sense of that I'm broken or I'm different or I'm wrong or I'm bad in some way, it's really hard to do life. And so I like to connect with people on a deeper level and have deeper conversations about who you are and how you got to be who you are and why that's okay. I guess a couple of things, my own sexual past probably is what informs most of us to do what we do. So my own sexual orientation journey, realizing going from like, I had no idea that I was a lesbian to thinking like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know this existed in my 20s is when I really kind of realized that there was this whole world out there that I didn't have access to in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And as I started to understand myself in a greater perspective on the world, I realized that I could have a relationship with a woman and that could be fulfilling. But I had a ton of shame about that. I was so embarrassed to be myself. I I tried to be a nun for a while because I thought if I don't feel comfortable having a relationship with a male and I really enjoy relationships with females and you know that in that world you have a lot of relationships with women and that was very appealing to me and so I tried to join an order and then at the last minute when I was getting ready to start the journey into saying my first vows, I said, I, I actually, I can't do this. And um, shortly thereafter, I met my wife and so goes my journey. So I think part of it is really understanding myself and, and knowing how big of a deal it was for me and thinking, it. well, if it was this big a deal for me, it must have been a big deal for other people as well. And how can I help them so that they can begin to understand themselves and not struggle nearly as much as I did. That was a really powerful story. Wow. 
Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. And I can definitely see how that informs your perspective. And I am super excited to talk about this. Yeah. So like we said, today we're going to discuss sex and shame. So let's jump right in. So our first question to create a nice foundation for our listeners is, can you describe to our listeners and us what sex shame is? Well, sexual shame is this basic understanding that our bodies are bad in some way, that pleasure is not something we should seek, and particularly as women in our culture. We tend to say to women, if you enjoy sex, if you enjoy sexual pleasure, then you are a slut. We slut shame for even having interest in another person. Still today, with all the progress we've made, we still have this whole slut shame thing going for us in our culture, and it is horrible. And because of that, that, that saying like if you have interest in another person then you are a horrible person basically by using words such as whore or slut or cunt or I mean just belittling somebody because they have an interest in somebody else or a sexual interest or enjoy their bodies in any way shape or form so I think shame comes from that global message even if someone isn't told directly they see other people being told whether it be on social media on the news and tv shows or in their own home and we start sexual shame very young because most parents don't think that their infants are sexual beings they don't want to allow their infants to touch themselves or explore their bodies and they tell their children to put clothes on when they start to run around naked and talk about how inappropriate that is. And I'm not saying that you should let your small child be naked anywhere, but I am saying that cultures that do allow that have much healthier sexuality and end up having a lot less depression and anxiety because they accept themselves fully and wholly and allow children to have their bodies without sexualizing them, but still allowing them to enjoy the, the pleasures that their body brings skin-to-skin touch. So it's funny you bring that up. So my daughter is like, sister loves to stim herself. Like she will stim herself on anything. (laughs) The corner of the coffee table, her bed, whatever she can find, she stimulates herself on. It doesn't bother me. I know that's what she's doing. But boy, does it make other people wildly uncomfortable. And then just recently, I think she's also discovered manual stimulation of herself. And she's like, mommy, it tickles. (laughs) And again, I'm just like, hey, you know, you are self-discovery. I'm just going to let that be. Not going to make this a big deal. But again... Wow, does it make other people uncomfortable that she does that? You know, that's true. A lot of girls kind of have that experience because it's comforting. It feels good. I have a daughter who did that as well, kind of a lot. And our general rule in our house was to tell her what she's doing and tell her that that's an okay thing to do and that privacy is important. Mm-hmm. Well, she, yeah, she's three. And so there are times where I'm like, Annie, what are you doing? She's like, just stimming myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's awesome. She'll be like, sorry, mommy, I was just stimming myself. <laughs> this get, I mean, I find kind of funny. So we are starting to have more of the conversations like maybe we just stim ourselves in our bedrooms or whatever. But for the most part, I just let it be. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned let that. Let her explore her body. Yes. Okay, so you kind of hit on this with the last question. But can you talk a little bit more about how we acquire shame around sex? Sure. I'll just start with what like what I talked about before is a little bit is like just observing other people's experience of expressing their sexuality and being punished or shamed for it by being told they're bad in some way, shape or form. But it really starts 
in infancy. As parents, we have to realize that our children are born sexual. In fact, they're sexual before they are even born. As soon as they develop hands in the womb, you, there's images of unborn babies stimming themselves in the womb, which is wonderful. It, it just proves that, that this is a, a pleasurable experience in our bodies. And the thing that I think gets adults freaked out, if you will, is that as adults, when we're trying to achieve orgasm, it requires a cognitive element. So a person can't have an orgasm without thinking about something sexual. If you're thinking about the laundry or you're thinking about what you're going to make for dinner, you're never going to achieve orgasm. You have to be thinking about something sexual. But for children, they don't have that cognitive component. If they are healthy children who have not been taught inappropriately about sexual activity or they haven't been abused in any way, what they're doing is exploring the the health of their body. They're not thinking about some sexual experience that, that is beyond their age or that they they haven't been exposed in some way to a visual or cognitive sexual experience. And I think that that gets adults tripped up. They don't really think about that. So they think if my child is stimulating themselves or if my child is masturbating, then they must have been exposed in some way to something inappropriate. And that's just not true. One of the things that I require my students in my class to do is kind of talk about so I give them a list of things and among those lists of things is like adolescent sexual play child sexual play infant sexual play and is it appropriate for myself is it appropriate for others or is it inappropriate for both and almost always when it comes to children even adolescents my students respond with it's totally inappropriate for everyone children should not have any sexual contact with their body at all and I think it's the cognitive piece that freaks people out thinking like like well if they've experienced if they're experiencing sexual pleasure they must have an element that in fact they really don't have so when we see our children touching themselves a lot of parents panic and freak out and think one i don't want anybody to think that i'm hurting my child in any way two i don't want my child to be overly sexualized in their own self and so i don't want them this to be their focus. And three, I don't want my child to be a victim of some sort of sexual assault because they enjoy their body. And I understand how those, because of the messages and because what we do teach commonly about sex, I understand how those messages are portrayed and how they're understood. But the problem is they're wrong because the more a child knows about their body and particularly females, because their sex organs are more internal than males, the more they they know about their bodies, the more they're able to talk about their bodies, the less likely they are to be a victim of a sexual crime. And that's the reality of it because they have the words to share. So if somebody touches them inappropriately, if they know what a vagina is, if they know what a clitoris is, if they know what a mounds is, if they know what labia are, they're going to be able to say, this is what happened. They're going to have the words. They're going to have the knowledge. They're going to have the language. We have a wonderful family and in our family is our donor and his wife and his mother and they are very much a part of our children's lives and so our children and well I think it was just my older daughter when she was about two went to stay with her grandma for a couple of weeks or a week over the summer and while she was there her name's Deb Deb called me up and she said Nikki do you know that your daughter says the word vagina and I said 
Uh, yeah, I I did know that. <laughs> she said, I can't believe she says the word vagina. She's talk. She's like, hold on, Grandma, I need to wipe my vagina. And I about fainted. And I was like, well, what do you want her to call it? <laughs> like, what do you want her to call it something else? And she was like, I've just never heard a baby use the word vagina before. And I was like, well, get used to it because I want her to use the appropriate words. So shame starts from very young, from not teaching. Uh, same daughter in kindergarten, they do a Wilson orchard, which is an apple orchard here in Iowa City. They do a field trip. And I went with another mother. And in kindergarten, these kids are playing around. And when you're around five-year-olds, as the both of you probably know, their hand reach is your crotch area. Like, that's where they touch a lot. So this other mother kept getting touched in that area. And she kept saying, do not touch my no-no spot. Do not touch my no-no spot. And I was just like, what the heck is a no-no spot? But that's how shame is created, by saying that's a no-no spot, that's a private part. And it's not that those parts aren't private. They are private, but they're not private to the extent of we can't talk about them. We can't mention them. We can't discuss them. Because that creates a, oh, that must be bad. It's a secret we can't tell. And if it's a secret, then it's bad and wrong and not okay. And that's just not true when it comes to your body. This is all very affirming because, yes, we talk about vulvas and labias. So when we used to change my daughter's diaper, I, I would say, hanging out with our labias out. And my mom was so mortified when I would say that. But my daughter, <laughs> yeah, she talks about her vulva, her labias, and and I think it's awesome. <laughs> so this is all very affirming that I'm, I'm on the too. right path then. You are. You're on the right path. Excellent. I'm going to keep making everyone else uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I think now it just makes my kids roll their eyes because anytime they have any sort of question or I catch them looking for something, some information on sex, like my oldest daughter, who's 11, she was looking up kissing and she's going to be mortified if she ever hears this, but like on YouTube. And so then I had to give her this big, long talk about like, you have people in your world who know a lot about sex. So even if you don't want to ask us, I would rather you ask them, ask somebody you know, then look it up on the internet. And so we had a big discussion about it, but they are very informed and they're very annoyed that their peers aren't informed. So their peers say things and they come home and they say like, I don't understand why they would think that this way or that way. Or So they, they're educating their peers appropriately, I hope. <laughs> That's what I hope my kids will be, because I would rather my kids have the information and other kids come to them rather than my kids be going to other people for information. Yes, me too. And I want accurate right. information. Yes, exactly. Uh, I just like, I'm listening to these girl things and I'm like, oh, because I, I have two boys. And one of them is only one, but the five-year-old is like, that's all he does is touch other people's butts. And <laughs> that's his height. That's what he can reach. But including his one-year-old brother, I'm like, oh my gosh, stop touching his butt. <laughs> You know what, actually, can we talk a little bit more about acquiring shame? So I know that you talk some about parents, but can you maybe talk about some other avenues? You had mentioned religion in your role. Right. Like, are there other sources that this comes from? Yeah, I mean, it comes from our culture in general. So like watching TV and how characters respond to being sexual or sexualized it comes from social media, but it also comes from religion and what we teach in the church, whatever church you're going to, what, what your church teaches about sexuality and sexual health and it can be simple from like no sex before marriage 
but there's no explanation of why that's not okay. It's just a blatant rule. And that's not true for all churches, so I'm not I'm not trying to put down everybody's religion here, but I'm saying like we, we really as parents need to be aware of how the culture that we're exposing our children to, why do they have the rules they have? Why is there no sex before marriage? And it may be uh, because we want our children to be protected and safe. It may be because we don't want our children to be pregnant or get somebody pregnant before marriage. I mean, there may be a reason that is important to somebody and fits with somebody's values. But when we just say like, these are the rules and you must stick to them and we get angry if our children explore their sexuality in any way, or we say that this orientation is bad. So if you love a woman or you love a man and you are a man, or if you are born into the wrong body and you're transgender, then you have to deny that and try to live this heterosexual normative life that doesn't fit you. It's really unfair and it's not compassionate. And that just creates a sense of wrongness because if we're saying you can't do that and you can't be that because it's evil or bad, or then what we're saying is that you as a person, you're wrong and you don't deserve love and compassion and you don't deserve to be happy and you have to fight this your whole life otherwise you're going to burn eternally that's not healthy in any way shape or form for anybody and I know that there are a lot of religious people out there who would absolutely agree with me. And there are some religious people who would say, like, it's the devil coming out of your mouth. And that's fine. I, I think that people are allowed to have their values and their belief system. But when you're trying to help your children understand their bodies and their urges and their attractions in a healthy way without developing a sense of I'm wrong, which is what shame is. Shame is saying that I'm wrong because I feel this way or think this way or have this attraction. And if you don't want that for your children, and if you don't want that for your clients and your patients, then then you have to explore that deeper and kind of explain some of those things. You know, as a clinician, I don't talk to people about their own religious perspectives. I don't like try to explain a morality to them because I don't believe in a specific morality, one. And two, I'm not a religious therapist. It's not my goal in life to educate people on some sort of religious orientation. But it's not that I wouldn't discuss it with them and talk to them about how those messages are formed and how they internalize them and create them for their own. Because I think it is a huge issue when it comes specifically to attraction and to masturbation and to pleasure. Religion pops up in people's heads and says, this is wrong. I am wrong. My body is wrong. I'm not allowed to feel this way. I'm not allowed to have this pleasure. And well, that's just not true. And just kind of adding to that, I have noticed too that because I didn't grow up in a religious household, but the omission of discussion can also, I think, create this shame. Like growing up, my parents would never talk to me about any of this. And so you... And at school. That's right. No one really, no adults talk about it. So you really get this like, oh, it's not something that we should be talking about. I kind of joke, I wish I could figure out the name of this book, but my mom was like, give me books like about periods or, and I joke because she gave me this one book about, it was probably just like overall health and it talked about playing with yourself. And I don't remember how the book worded the situation or whatever, but you could kind of almost see that it was shameful I and mean, the way the book was described like that's how mm-hmm. I remember feeling and then I remember thinking playing with myself I play with myself all the time because I thought playing with yourself was like hey Barbie and Ken <laughs> And so I thought I was sort of like doing something shameful in the fact of like playing with my toys when I was alone. (laughs) So, 
I don't, and I don't know why I felt shame around that per se, but something in, in that book probably triggered it or the fact that my mom didn't talk to me about it or. <laughs> That's right. The lack of knowledge that parents give absolutely impacts that shame. Because if, if it's a secret, if we're not talking right. about it, then it must be wrong. It must be bad. Books are wonderful resources for kids. They're full of knowledge and there are some wonderful books about bodies and what's going on with bodies from little, little tiny kids to adults. There are some wonderful books, but a book isn't enough. We have to also talk to our children about what's happening in the book and what they're feeling in their body and open up those communication lines, not only for us. I don't know why children aren't comfortable coming to their parents, even when their parents are super open. I would say that my kids are super annoyed with me about how much I talk to them about their bodies. And as they're developing these breast buds and starting to get menstrual cramps where they're like preparing for menses, they just are super annoyed and they roll their eyes at me all the time because I'm like, hey, let's talk about how you're feeling and what's going on with your body. And they're like, uh, or if I... Is somebody like my daughter last night was saying to me, one of her friends likes this boy and they were talking. And I was like, well, is there anybody that you like? And she's like, no, mom, you know, like so. But I think it's really important that we continue those conversations and have other people in their life. So if you're not comfortable coming to me because I'm your parent, that's OK. Here are five other people that you can go to that will talk to you about this who have the actual knowledge rather than your peers who learned it off of YouTube or worse, Pornhub. Pornhub is very, very easily to access for any kid. All they have to do is type in the word porn and everything comes up on their phones unless it's blocked, which I highly recommend because I think accurate information is very important and people get attached to imagery and not another person. And that's not a healthy way to learn about sexuality. It causes problems later on. <laughs> So if you're not talking to your kid, your kid is getting the information. If you're not talking to your patients or your clients, they're getting information somewhere and you don't know that that information is correct or helpful. And I think kind of bringing it back to the healthcare provider setting, we talk about a lot just in general in this podcast is that a mission of talking about sex or asking your patients about sex is continually sending that message of shame. And I think that we need to break free of that and realize that it's a quality of life issue, which is what we're all in this profession for. Right. And so when it's been particularly when you talk to your female patients, one of those questions that get omitted is, do you mm -hmm. have orgasms? And I think that is really, really important. And that question needs to be followed up with, do you provide clitoral stimulation? Because so many women believe, and I am just floored by this, but so many women believe that if you do not have an orgasm through intercourse, then you in some way are immature or broken. And that is just not true at all. Most women cannot have an orgasm by intercourse. The ones that have are the exception, not the rule. And that's a blessing. And yay them. I'm really happy for them. But there are so many women who cannot achieve orgasm through intercourse. And, and so therefore, they're 65 years old and have never ever had an orgasm because they're uncomfortable touching their own bodies. They don't even look at themselves. They don't know anything about their female anatomy at all beyond I have my period and I know how to have a baby right that that's all they know and that is unfortunate and that is the majority of the women and not the minority of the women I mean here in Iowa City it's very liberal 
this is a very liberal town and we talk about things that other small towns don't talk about. We talk about them openly. We have conferences, we have seminars, we have access to information. And here in Iowa City, the majority of the women do not know their bodies. The women who come into my office, who come directly from a healthcare provider, a gynecologist, do not know that they need clitoral stimulation to have orgasms. That's the reality. I'm just shocked. I mean, the majority and then also like to be 65 and still not have that understanding. And so I live in a very rural, I live in Iowa as well, but in a very rural town now. And I actually had, so I've been substitute teaching and I had a discussion with some students Hopefully I don't get fired for having that discussion. But I asked them where they got their information and and what they had learned. And I'm thinking of everything you're saying. And I'm like, okay, how do I help these people? Because this is, to me, it's such an integral part of your life. Yet no one's talking about it or they're just getting it from their peers. Parents aren't talking about it. It is so behind closed doors. I'm just like, what do I do? Right. And even in sexual education, we talk about abstinence only. And if we do... Mm -hmm talk about orgasm at all, we only talk about it in the sense of a male orgasm. And that's understandable because male orgasm creates pregnancy, but by not talking about female orgasm or sexual pleasure at all, we're really bypassing an opportunity to educate people and decrease the amount of shame that they have about their bodies. But that omission, again, is another way that shame is created. And I just want to circle back. I know we had mentioned healthcare providers a couple times, so, and I think you have hit on this too, I just want to kind of reiterate it, but why do you think exploring sex shame is so important for healthcare providers. Well, I think healthcare providers need to explore their own sexual shame because if you feel ashamed of something or you're uncomfortable with it, you're not going to talk to your patients about it. You're not going to be able to have a conversation. The words orgasm are going to be very difficult to say. And so one of the things that we have to do as healthcare providers is to examine our own past, how we learned about sex, the messages we received about sex, the things in our life that are prominent now? How do we explore our own sexuality? How do we do our own self-stim? Is that something that we would be willing to talk about even with our partners? Do you talk to your partner about sex? A lot of people have sex with their partner and never talk about it. Never say like, that doesn't feel good. This does feel good. Could you do that harder? Could you go faster? Could you go slower? Can you touch me here? Would you kiss me there? We don't talk about that with the people that we're having sex with, people that we're naked with, that we're laying with, because if we talk about it, then it it becomes embarrassing. So if you as a healthcare provider notice that you're not talking to your partner about your own sexual pleasure, you're not talking to your family members, you're not talking to your children, allowing your children to explore their own sexuality, you have shame. Where did it come from? How did you get that message? And is that something that you want to re-examine and say like, you know, I'm kind of over this whole shame thing and I'm going to enjoy my body for my body. I think that it's just like multicultural counseling or multicultural anything, healthcare providing. We have to examine our own biases first, and we all have sexual biases. Where are they? What are they? And it's not just about sexual orientation or transgender or this is wrong. It's not about that. It's about the specifics of talking to your partner about sexuality, the person that you're actually having sex with, and where did you get that message, and how did you get that message, and kind of washing it out and re-examining it. If we don't bring it into our awareness, then there's no way to change it. So the first thing we have to do is just become aware of it and then we can challenge it and we can change it. And the only way to get comfortable talking about sex is to talk about sex. Another activity that I have my students do is I make them video, because it's an online class, I make them record themselves saying words that they're uncomfortable with. Clitoris, 
orgasm. I mean, basic words that they, about sex and sexuality coming, that they're uncomfortable with. Because if you don't mirror the language of your patients, then you're not going to be able to talk to them on their level about their own sexuality. So if you're too busy being uncomfortable in your own skin and embarrassed, there's no way that you're going to be able to say, do you touch your clitoris? Have you ever used a vibrator? Tell me the ways that you explore your body and have tried to have an orgasm and how long is it taking and what are you doing? Are you using lubrication? So that you can easily say like, well, here's one thing you can do differently. I wonder how that will work for you. Education right there, plain and simple. And also in that moment, you're, that person goes, well, my doctor said this, so it must be okay. My healthcare provider said to me to touch my clitoris. I mean, that is like, that must be an acceptable thing to do because somebody in authority told me to do it and said it was okay, which is how lay people look at it unfortunately, rather than just saying like, I want to explore my own body. Also, this makes me want to become a sex therapist. I think you already did. I did already want to do that. But this really makes me want to become a therapist. So you talked a little bit about how sex shame manifests itself for healthcare providers with talking to patients and, and then even just talking to your partner. Are there other ways that sex shame itself can manifest into our personal and professional lives? Yeah, I think the, the one way that you can recognize it pretty quickly is that how willing are you to say certain sexual words to somebody else? It could be your best friend even. How willing are you to bring up to your best friend? How often are you having an orgasm? Because I'm really struggling with this and what's happening for you. Whereas with your best friend over coffee, you would say like, my partner is a jerk and did this and I'm so tick sick of doing all the dishes. You know, we talk about those things so readily, but how readily would you bring up your own sexual experience? Or during sex, my partner did this and it was really awkward and weird for me and I don't know how to to share that with them without hurting their feelings. How willing would you be to bring that up with your best friend, the person that you're most intimate with in a non-sexual way? So that's one way, like how does it manifest in your lives? And it manifests by not manifesting, right? So I mean, it's mute. It's non-existent. It's not something we explore. It's not something we talk about. And I think that's why it's hard to answer this question a little bit is because it's omitted. If it's something that we're not comfortable about, then sex is omitted. We hand our children a book. We don't talk to them, which is the majority of people's sexual knowledge is a book they got from their parents and their parents not willing to have the conversation with them because of their own uncomfortableness. So for healthcare providers, it would be not willing to talk to their patients about their orgasms, not willing to explore sexual pleasure. Only when intercourse is impossible do women usually talk about their sexual pleasure or having issues with sex in general. When their male partners start to complain about not being able to have their own sexual pleasure when it becomes a disruption of that cycle. Do they talk about it? That's pretty much the only time a patient's going to be willing to bring it up. And that's not all patients, of course, but that's the majority of them. And that's the reality of it. So as a provider, we have to be the one to initiate that conversation to say like, hey, this is an okay thing to talk about. And I'm going to show you that it's okay by talking about it. That's true for mental health providers as well. We have to be willing to ask our couples when they're in our office, "Eh, how is your sex life? How do you communicate about sex? Are you getting your sexual needs met? Because It's leaving it up to our patients to bring those questions to us is not helpful to them at all. It's not, it doesn't relieve any of that shame and it's very anxiety provoking to them. And we are the ones being paid. So we're the ones that need to be willing to step out of our own skin and say, 
hey, how is this for you? And can I help you make this better for you? Yeah, so I mean, reality is, is that it doesn't manifest. It's muted in our lives. And I think we can look and say like, well, how willing am I to do this? How often do I talk about this in a very specific way? And if it, the answer is never, then you need to examine what's going on with you and why wouldn't you ever talk about it? Another issue that I feel is really common in the clinical setting, at least in everywhere that I've worked, and kind of bringing it back to the initial part of this conversation, is a lot of gynecologists or women's health providers are pretty comfortable saying words like clitoris and labia and vulva because they do it all the time. And they may or may not ask patients about sex. I mean, they usually do ask at least about sexual partners. But I see a lot of the time this slit shaming type behavior, even from providers, whether it be lecturing a patient about the number of sex partners that they have or using condom. You know, obviously we should be educating on safe sex, but it becomes paternalistic or even just the backroom provider talk about a particular patient who maybe has a lot of sex partners or is getting a lot of sexually transmitted diseases and what that implies. So could you kind of talk about that shame and how you could sort of address that within yourself when you want to go there? I mean, that's a manifestation of sexual shame right there. So that says to me, if somebody's talking about how many sex partners somebody else has, they're putting their values on their patients. And it's okay to have those values for yourself. If your morality says that you're only allowed to have one sexual partner in life, well, I feel bad for you. I also understand <laughs> that that's how some people are. There are a lot of people in this world who have multiple partners. And just because I'm not one of them doesn't mean that it's not okay for somebody else to be one of them. And if you have examined your own sexual shame and understand where that message is coming from, that it's not okay to have multiple partners, then you are willing to say, that's my value. Okay, I can see that. I want this. And I can step out of myself and see that somebody else may be able to negotiate multiple relationships and that's okay for them. But if you don't examine those, then you assume that everybody has the same morality and belief system that you do. And that's just not true. That goes back to the similarity between multicultural counseling. If you don't learn what you've learned about people of color in your life, if you don't bring that into your awareness and challenge that and say, whoa, 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 that doesn't fall in line with my belief system. That doesn't, that's not who I am or how I want to treat people in this world. And I need to examine that and alter my behavior so that I treat people differently. I think providers who would lash out or lecture somebody about their own sexual orientation really aren't even aware of sexual shame because they're in fact embodied sexual shame right there. It's appalling to me to think that a sexual health provider, somebody who works with sexual organs, would say to somebody, you have way too many partners. What are you doing? You're going to hurt yourself. That's a very different conversation than saying like, okay, so you have multiple partners. Let's talk about barrier protection, keeping yourself healthy. When you have sex with a partner, do you know their STI stats? Do you know who they're also having sex with? And how do you have that conversation in a way that says like what you're doing is absolutely acceptable. And honestly, for me in my style of counseling, what I say is just that. I'm glad that you're enjoying sex and your body and I'm really glad that you're having multiple partners and that seems like that's working for you. These are the things that I'm curious about. So they know that I'm saying, add a girl or add a boy, enjoy your life and have sex. You have my stamp of approval to live your life the way that you want. And also there are some concerns when you share very vulnerable parts of your body with somebody else, 
vulnerable, meaning easily to get sick. Mucous membranes are not as protective as outer layers of skin. It's not like shaking somebody's hand. So I think it's really important to have those conversations, but there are ways to have those conversations without shaming somebody for, again, the people that they love, the way that they love, or the sexual pleasure that they're receiving. I have to say that I love that you added that, wow, you're enjoying sex and that's great. I don't think I've ever heard that (laughs) from anyone. So I think that's a big takeaway is that you can celebrate it, celebrate multiple partners or not multiple partners or any type of enjoyment that patients get and yourself too. Right. Yeah. Because we don't have any right to say what somebody else does with their life. It's their life and they get to live it the way they want to. Our job is to help them do that in a healthy way for themselves, to protect themselves. For me, it's about keeping a strong mental health. For me, I think the biggest issue when I see people with multiple partners, whether they're poly or maybe they're not even committed, they just really enjoy having multiple sexual partners, is to say, how are you doing with this emotionally? Because I know with my one partner, there's a lot of ups and downs. So want to know how you're managing all of that. That's a lot to manage. That's the only thing that comes to my mind is that is a lot of feelings to manage. How are you managing all of that? So talking about that in a way that is your specialty, but in a way that is accepting and affirming, but also curious about how that's going for them and if they need any extra help or if they need any support in that at all. And they may say like, no, actually, I'm managing it quite well. This is how I do it. Great. And if they're not willing to talk to you about it, they're not willing to talk to you about it. And that's an okay thing too, but that's their choice. And we don't get to put our own values and our own belief system on anybody else. That is not acceptable at all. Yes, I 100% agree. And one thing I want to circle back to is you mentioned that one way to start working through shame is to start looking at your own and understanding the roots and where that came from. And I'm just curious, again, on the individual level, are there any other ways that we can begin to deal with our shame and move forward from having shameless sex? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is examine where do I talk about sex and where do I not talk about sex? Am I willing to talk about sex with the person I have sex with? I think that's the basic question. And if you say, oh gosh, that is really uncomfortable and I have a really hard time with that, then you have some really heavy duty sexual shame. And you need to ask yourself, like, where did I get that message? How did that come about? Why don't I do that? Where did I learn that from? And then begin having a conversation with your partner, I think is the easiest place to begin about like, hey, why don't we ever really talk about this? And what is your feelings about it? Why haven't you brought it up to me? And what's going on here is a good place to start just to begin to examining your own knowledge base, your own information. Like, how did you learn about sex? How did you learn about your body? I would imagine for a lot of healthcare providers, it's They learned about their body when they went to anatomy class. That's where they learned about their body. When they started to study sexual organs, that's how they learned about their body. So then we ask ourselves, okay, you were curious enough about that to examine your own body and to learn about other people's bodies to go into this field in particular. So why? How come you have that curiosity? Why did you choose this? And begin to unfold it that way. Because the hardest thing about sex is that it is an omission. People don't talk about it. And if you're not talking about it in your own life, it's really hard to say like, oh, these are the things that stand out for me, why I have sexual shame. So I think the first thing is to recognize whether you're talking about it or you're not talking about it. And then the second thing to do is to kind of unfold it for yourself to say like, what did I learn? What did my parents teach me about sex is a really 
really good place to start. Like, how did I learn about my body? What do I know about masturbation or stimulation of my own body? Do I have orgasms? How often am I having orgasms? When do I have the urge to have an orgasm? What does an orgasm do for me? Does it relieve pressure? Is it a way to fall asleep? All of those things are acceptable. And also, there's sexual enjoyment. Like, yes, an orgasm can be great in releasing hormones that help you fall asleep. Yes, it's a good source of prolactin, right? So we can relax and go to sleep and that's fun and all. But what about the sexual pleasure? What what are you fantasizing about? What are you thinking about? And is that an okay thing? Because the reality is it is okay. Some people think if I'm thinking about somebody else while I'm having an orgasm, then I'm cheating on my spouse. I disagree. I think thoughts are private and you don't have to share them with anybody you don't want to share them with. And not that you should say to your partner, I was thinking about this other person and that was a great orgasm. I don't think that you should do that because that will hurt feelings. But (laughs) that doesn't mean that you don't get to think about other things. It's called fantasy for a reason and you should explore it and enjoy it. So I think those are the basic ways to think about your own sexuality and to begin to explore like how much shame am I carrying around? And is that something I want to hand down to my patients? And is that something I want to hand down to my children? And is that something I want to hand to my friends? Because if if I'm a healthcare provider and I'm a person who talks about labias and vaginas and clitorises all day long, and I'm not willing to talk about sex, that's some deep-rooted shame. Could you talk a little bit about at what point somebody may decide, I've kind of done these two steps that I heard about on this podcast, and I have really deep-rooted shame. Where could they sort of go to work on that further? Obviously, like, you do that work, but if they don't live in Iowa or maybe don't have a lot of places to access sex therapy. Yeah, I think you should be able to go to a counselor in general to talk about it. What I would do if you discover that you need help unfolding some of that sexual shame, it would be to go on Psychology Today and look for therapists, find somebody. The pictures are really important to me. So honestly, I look at their pictures. And if I say like, oh, I could talk to that person, I don't think I could talk to that person. So find the person, however you do that, that you think you could talk to. And then one of the things I would ask that person before I went in to see them is how comfortable are you talking about sex and sexuality because there's some things that I want to talk about. And if that person says like, oh, I'm not a sex therapist or I don't really talk about sex, then you don't go see that person. You find somebody that you can talk about. The other thing is if the, if you don't have access to a therapist who's willing to talk about sex, which unfortunately some people don't, because even in rural areas or in urban areas, there's people that, there's therapists that just will not talk to their patients about sex. I do not understand that, but it is the reality. So if you can't find somebody, then you go to your best friend and you say like, hey, I'd really like to talk about this. Would you be up for it? And you unpack it there because there's always somebody you can bounce ideas off of and thoughts off of. And maybe that person, hopefully that person would say, oh my gosh, I have these same thoughts and these same feelings and I've never thought about it that way either. Maybe we can start to explore this together. The other thing you can do is look look for books about sexuality and sexual pleasure and start to do some reading, listening to sexual podcasts. There's a lot of sexual podcasts available that you can listen to and educate yourself about your own sexuality. There's a lot of knowledge within the internet about sexual health and understanding our own sexual shame and overcoming that. Even looking at um, sexual pleasure models, you know, for females, that would be the Bassan model of sexual pleasure, which is a wonderful place to start in kind of looking at sexual intimacy, arousal, orgasm. I mean, just the whole circle of, I'll tell you exactly what it says. So it's like, 
for women, the idea is that emotional intimacy, sexual stimuli, arousal, desire, and then orgasm and physical attraction, sexual attraction. So asking yourself, oh, I never really thought about sex, my own sexual pleasure as circular. Or for women, when we reach the stage of, so we have sexual desire, the, the wanting to have sex, and then we have sexual stimulation and arousal. That's when we begin a lubrication process and begin to, pre- our body prepares for intercourse, prepares for orgasm. And then we have plateau, and that plateau place is very dangerous because it's when our cognitive brain has to kick in a little bit more because our physical body says, this is a lot of stimulation, and I am just going to sit here for a moment. So we have to continue the process by bringing our own thoughts into it, and sometimes that goes really fast and it's really easy to do, and other times it takes a little bit of work. So really understanding that process for yourself and the things that you do find attractive. So what are the triggers that get you to think like, oh, that that's really sexy. That's really arousing. These are the things that I think I would really enjoy. And knowing that, I mean, you're not an island. Nobody is an island. Other people have those too. So being willing to talk about those things openly with somebody else and just asking like, how comfortable are you? And not with everybody, right? For those, those people that are closest to you, like, how long talk about this with me? Because I really want to talk about my own sexual cycle and how I begin to experience and or think about sexual pleasure. And we do that a little bit and just by talking about the people that we find attractive. And maybe that is a good segue, a place to start when you don't have access to a mental health provider who can ask you some pointed questions and help you unfold some of the stuff from your past. But talking about people that you find attractive and what do you think you find attractive? Why do you think you find that attractive? And what is it about that person? Is it the way they handle themselves? Is it the way they talk? Is it their body? Those things are okay to think about. And those things are very acceptable to have in your life. And the more we're openly willing to talk about that with the people that are closest to us, including our own sexual partners, the things that we find sexy that they do, the things that we enjoy when they touch us or when they tease us or when they talk to us, the more we're going to be willing to talk about that with somebody else and to say, what are the things that you enjoy? Not that you're going to share your own experience with your patients. You're not going to do that. And that's not what I'm saying. But you are going to use your own experience to become more comfortable with somebody else's experience. Because if you can be become comfortable with you, you're going to be comfortable with somebody else as well. And honestly, you're going to be more comfortable because we tend to be more acceptable of other people than we do ourselves. So it's a really good place just to begin to start to find that acceptance for yourself and allow yourself to have those desire triggers, if you will, so that we can understand like the things that arouse us and turn us on and move us into a place of orgasm and sexual pleasure rather than a place of withdrawal. One question I had, you had mentioned books a few times. What are some of your favorite books that might be resources for either exploring shame or teaching shame? But I have a feeling that you probably have some favorites. Jeez, do I? Honestly, for women, I really like, and I don't have a copy currently because I give it away every time I get it, is Our Bodies Ourselves. I think how valuable to have every copy of that book, right? So, and the more recent copy, the better, because then it's like the first book that talks about sexual pleasure in a sense of these are the things you can do to enjoy your own body and these are things that are normal and that people experience in part of life but you know I don't really have honestly I do, other than that book I don't have a favorite book most of the books that I look at are clinical <laughs> and those are boring <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend somebody go out and purchase one of those 
unless that's where your interest is. And then I absolutely think that that can be a very good place to start is a clinical handbook. And my favorite book in that realm is the Handbook of Clinical Sexuality, because I think that that gives a very, especially for a healthcare provider, that gives a very healthy understanding. It breaks it down into sections. It's a very easy read. It's a fabulous book. This is the book I teach out of. This is the book I've always taught out of. This is the book I advocate other people teach out of. This is a great read. It is Levine is the main author, but it's the Handbook of Clinical Sexuality for Mental Health Professionals. And it is a good book for other health professionals as well. You don't have to have knowledge of mental health pedagogy to understand this book. And you also mentioned podcasts. Have you heard any that you really like or heard of any that your patients really like? There's one called Sex Talk that's really good, and I have my students listen to it. There's several out there now, but I like that, the one that's called Sex Talk. I like to hear about other people's sexual stories, and it's whatever your jam is. I don't like to listen to a lot of sexual fantasy myself, just because that's not, I mean, it's just not arousing to me. It's not something that I enjoy doing, but some people do, and so there are some podcasts out there that are specifically for developing your own fantasy and creating arousal within yourself, which are interesting. So I would take some time to explore different things on just typing in sex and sexuality into your search engine and finding what podcasts will pop up for you and and doing a basic listen to see what you like. It's a good source of knowledge. All right, Nikki. Well, we would both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. And we have absolutely loved exploring this. And we're just wondering, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end about sex shame or anything else you'd like to discuss? Well, I would just like to say, I think this is a great place to start for healthcare providers. And I'm so thankful that you women are putting this out there and you're stepping up and taking this in your in your own hands, if you will, and saying like, these are things that people need to know. I think this is a great conversation starter. And I think that the more people begin to understand and internalize their own understanding of their body and their willingness to explore their own sexual health and sexuality, the better person they're going to be and the better provider they're going to be. I would also like to say, I know three out of five women have experienced sexual assault. And so thinking about sexuality and thinking about sexual health and orgasm can be triggering and are trauma-inducing for some people. And I'd like to recognize that that could possibly be an issue for you as a provider. And I would like to say that I think one of the biggest things that happens when you're assaulted and somebody takes advantage of your body without your permission is that you begin to internalize that sex is wrong and sex is hard and sex is bad because it doesn't feel any different when somebody takes advantage of you and when you engage in sex willingly. And that's unfortunate. But I would like to say that there is a way to unfold that for yourself and to find difference. And sexual health is out there. You can begin to understand and accept yourself and begin to enjoy your own sexual pleasure. I think a lot of women give up on enjoying sex again. And I think The reality is that it does feel the same, but it's absolutely not the same. And creating that space in your mind is hard. So I just like to recognize that that could be an issue for people listening. And I hear you and I'm sorry that that happened and it wasn't okay. 
And now you have the opportunity to explore and to help other women explore their freedom into their own sexuality and sexual pleasure. We actually just released a podcast. The previous podcast to this one was on trauma-informed care. And I think that's something that with our next recording with you, we would love to explore concepts of trauma-informed care from like your perspective and definitely as providers. So I think I'm really excited for the next podcast. I think we're going to have another really great one and a, a lot of good stuff to talk and I think these two are definitely going to go together very well. Good. Yeah, that'll yes. be great. Okay. Thank you again, Dr. Julian. We thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our time and we are very excited about our next podcast recording with you. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you both very much. I appreciate it. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. 